just before we get into, into Micah. I don't, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. Here's my question for you. Is it the case that God in heaven is somehow playing games with the human race and he asks us to do things that actually are completely impossible? Take the Ten Commandments. Is there any human being who has ever kept God's standard? It, it's, it's impossible to live up to that standard. It's a great ideal. We're, yesterday we were uh, in our barn and, and Richard asked a question. Everyone had a light. And he said to everyone, if you've never done anything wrong, leave your light on. And if you, but if you feel you've done something wrong, just blow out your candle. It's pitch black. A few people hesitated. But eventually, I think they were shamed into blowing theirs out as well. <laughs> and it was pitch black in there. If you said to someone, are you perfect? No one in their right mind would say, yeah, I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. So we have this idea, don't we? That somehow, even God is asking us to do the impossible. He's given us laws that we cannot keep. So I want to say to you that when I think about hopelessness, this whole book of Micah really is about failure. And uh, it is, it, this, this whole period in history really is about the failure of God's people to be what they should be. And what is God's answer to that? What is God's solution to that? How can there be hope for the hopeless? So are you with me? That's a good question to ask. So, this is where we're going to go. I want to ask, first of all, who was Micah? Because we know a little bit about him. I want to think about what it was like when he lived, so that we can get a context for his life and his ministry. And then I want to look uh, at the book that he wrote here, the book of Micah, very helpfully named after him, and uh, think about how it divides up so that we can remember uh, some important things. And hopefully, by the end, we will learn something about hope for the hopeless hope for me hope for you ok so first of all who was Micah um, I, I came across someone's blog the other day on the internet and I went to their profile page and it made me think if Micah was a modern day blogger maybe his profile page would look like this Here's Micah's blog page. I know he lived in 730 BC and they didn't have computers then. But if he was on Blogspot, this is what his blog profile page would look like. So here he is. Industry, religion, occupation, Old Testament prophet, uh, location, Morasheth. If you've got your Bible open in Micah, which I hope you will have, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. During the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we're told that he lived in Morasheth. Morasheth? Morasheth? It's hard to say that. Um, if you think of the nation of Israel, I'll show you a map in a minute. Uh, Micah lived 25 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. He lived in the country. And uh, I think there's, uh, there's a good chance that Micah was from a farming sort of background. 
The fact that he lived through the reigns of these three kings tells us something about when Jotham began to reign in Judah in 750 BC and uh, Hezekiah's reign ended sometime around 686 I think from memory uh, Micah's ministry probably lasted for about 35-40 years but it spanned all three of those kings in Judah what's interesting I put at the bottom blogs I follow Isaiah the interesting thing about Micah is that he's a contemporary of Isaiah Isaiah is a much bigger book in the Old Testament he's one of the major prophets the interesting thing about Isaiah is that he was very much part of the royal court and so there's a contrast between Isaiah Isaiah's in Jerusalem he's, he's a diplomat he's involved in the royal court and you can read many things about Isaiah both in Isaiah itself and in the narrative books and Kings and Chronicles so this idea that Isaiah in a way is the big man the diplomat, the guy in the royal court he's a politician and Micah's the little man to the south in the farming country they're both saying the same thing but you've got the big guy and the little guy and uh, so it's quite interesting the contrast between those two I don't think Micah is perhaps as politically aware as Isaiah but he is very aware of injustice and corruption and the plight of his neighbours in in the south of the country this is a farming culture that is gradually becoming more and more urban and there's much that's wrong as we'll see there are all sorts of social problems that are based on greed and the abuse of power and Micah, some, some commentators call Micah the social prophet he was very concerned about injustice and corruption and greed in the nation Two other quick things about Micah. Micah is the only prophet in the Old Testament who is quoted by name by one of the other prophets. How about that? Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah uses Micah as an example to make a point to the people of his day. That's the only time in the Old Testament that happens. Um, The second interesting fact about Micah is his name means who is like God names are important in the Old Testament imagine being called that who is like God hi who is like God pleased to meet you that was his name who is like God in the first song that we sung today my Jesus my saviour what's the second line Lord, there is none like you. His name is a name that means that God is incomparable. Who can you compare him to? There is no one like him. We'll come back to that at the end. Let me very quickly uh, describe a little bit of the time that Micah lived in. And I'm going to show you a map, hopefully. Here we go. There we go. You can see the Mediterranean Sea there. You'll be aware, I think, from the overview that we did, that the nation of Israel, God's people, that he led out of Egypt with Moses, they became a great nation. The capital city was Jerusalem. There was a king called Saul, then David, David and Goliath, and then his son Solomon, the wisest king. After Solomon, the kingdom split into two distinct uh, halves 
in the north there was what became known as Israel with the capital city Samaria and in the south the tribe of Judah still with the capital city of Jerusalem Israel in the north the northern kingdom was generally pretty bad most of their kings were very ungodly unfaithful kings and the southern kingdom known as Judah quite a lot of their kings were good and uh, that's where Isaiah was in Jerusalem and it's where Micah was to the southwest of the country the big problem in their day was there was a bully and uh, some of you have seen some of this before but there was a regional bully the, the nation of Assyria which had been in decline was very much on the rise and uh, as, a, as a global superpower really the nation of Assyria was very brutally dominating all the nations around it and extending its borders some historians believe that the, the country of Assyria actually reached as far down as Egypt at the extent and the height uh, of its empire. Uh, there was a guy called Tiglath Pileser III, another great name, and he was a very dominant military figure. And uh, here's a picture of him that he had engraved on the wall of his palace. Um, let me read to you a quote. The brutal Assyrian style of warfare relied on massive armies, superbly equipped with the world's first great siege machines, manipulated by an efficient corps of engineers. Psychological terror, however, was Assyria's most effective weapon. It was ruthlessly applied, with corpses impaled on stakes, severed heads stacked in heaps, and their captives skinned alive. This man was a brutal military leader of Assyria. Israel and Judah in the west are in the firing line. God's people. And they've got to decide what we're going to do. This brutal man's going to come and skin us alive. Some of the kings made agreements and they paid tributes but there was a later king in the northern kingdom in Israel who thought I don't care if we die I'd rather be like William Wallace and Braveheart and die fighting than submit to this brutal man so he decided to rebel and uh, the first thing the king of Israel did was he made a pact with the country next door Syria capital city Damascus and they decided to make their borders look bigger that they would invade Judah in the south come and join our club otherwise we'll smash you this is where Isaiah and Micah are prophesying in the southern kingdom you can read about this um, in Isaiah uh, and in Kings and Chronicles the king of Judah a man called Ahaz the middle king of Micah's ministry he isn't, he isn't sure what to do his people are under pressure, but he has no thought for God. Isaiah tells him to pray. Ahaz thinks, pray, that's for sissies. What we need is political power. Forget God, let's make plans. Isaiah told Ahaz, and I'm sure Micah did as well, this is God's people. You need to trust in God. 
It says in the Bible Ahaz was unfaithful to God to begin with, but in the Bible it says that in the time of his trouble he became even more unfaithful. The people are afraid, but they're led by an ungodly king. Isaiah and Micah tell Ahaz to trust in the Lord. And you know what Ahaz does? He says no. What I'm going to do is send a telegram to Tiglath Pileser III in Assyria. And I'm going to tell him that my noisy neighbours in the north are attacking me. And Tiglath Pileser doesn't disappoint. He comes riding down the road with his army and he smashes Israel and Syria. Ahaz thinks it's worked. And he goes to meet Tiglath Pileser in Syria, in Damascus. And he sees the altar that the Assyrians have built to their false pagan gods. And he thinks to himself, if they're so powerful, their gods must be mightier than our god. And he gets his secretary to draw a sketch of the altar. And he sends it back to Jerusalem and says, get rid of all that stuff that God told you to build and put in the temple. And replace it with this. We're going to worship their gods from now on because they're bigger than us. Wow. About 12 years later, the Assyrians conquered Israel altogether, including Samaria. Later on, in 701 BC, they invaded Judah. During the reign of Hezekiah, they didn't quite manage to capture Jerusalem. After this, the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians, and they invaded the southern kingdom. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom was carried off into exile as well. Micah predicted all of that in this very book that we're reading. Just look at um, Micah chapter 1 and verse, uh, well the end of verse 5 and verse 6. Micah pleading, he says, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is, Israel, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. Micah says, judgment is coming because you've forsaken the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. 722 BC, Samaria was flattened. So Micah is kind of living in politically tumultuous times and here he is speaking God's word God's warnings into these nations so hopefully that gives you a bit of background we've covered some of that already but that, th- these are the times Micah lived in this is no namby-pamby farmer country boy who's just kind of thinking God's irrelevant he, he is speaking God's words into a very tumultuous time Okay, let's, um, where are we? This is good. I just, this is, um, there's a few things on this slide. So let let me um, break this down. Can you see that okay at the top? Can I just put this one light on? Is that better? You still see Bibles. (laughs) Okay, 
Let me just give you a quick overview of the book of Micah. There's only seven chapters. And if you've got your Bible open, which would be really useful, as I've said, you will see that there are three sections in the book of Micah. And they all begin with God calling people to listen. So, in chapter 1 and verse 1, the first section begins in verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. That's the beginning of section 1. If you go over then to chapter 3 and verse 1, there's the beginning of another section. Micah says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. So there's another call to listen. That's the beginning of the second section. And then if you go to the beginning of chapter 6, you'll see there another call to listen. Verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains. So there's seven chapters, but there are three distinct sections that all begin with a summons to listen. Come and listen. So that's helpful to see that there's three sections. Secondly, I want you to see that each section uh, is, is balanced in the sense that Micah speaks promises of warning of judgment to come and then on the other hand he offers great hope so just go back with me and we'll skip through if if you look at that first section beginning chapter one to the end of chapter two all the way through chapter one it's all about doom judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem Micah himself is weeping and mourning because he's not just looking at this as a spectator he's part of this You get into chapter 2. There's an amazing play on words there, actually, in chapter 2. In verse 1, Micah says, Woe to those who plan iniquity. And then in verse 3, he says, Therefore the Lord says, I'm planning disaster. So the picture there is the people are planning bad things. And in response, God is saying, I'm planning disaster for you. you. You think no one can see what you're doing. You're planning sin. I'm planning judgment kind of planning on both sides Uh, chapter 2 false prophets are there and then you get down to chapter 2 and verse 12 and the note changes look look at what he says in verse 11 if a liar and a deceiver comes and says I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer he would be just the prophet for this people (laughs) If, if, if a prophet stands up and says good news, good news, good news you'll congratulate him and embrace him because you, 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 you're not listening to God. You're just listening to what you want to hear. And then he gets to verse 12. All the doom and gloom. And then Micah says, The Lord speaking through Micah, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pastures the place will throng with people can you can you see the picture that Micah's Samaria and Judah are going to be flattened but a day is coming when God will restore judgment is coming 
but God has not abandoned ye. Verse 13, one who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let me show you the second section, the same thing, beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1. Summons to hear. It's all about the leaders this time being corrupt. And then you get to chapter 4. Chapter 3 is all about Jerusalem being flattened. And then you get to chapter 4. And the whole chapter is about Jerusalem on the mountain of the Lord being established as a great city that all the nations of the world will flock to. You couldn't have a worse, uh, not a worse, but a, a more dramatic contrast. Jerusalem's flattened. No, it isn't. It's going to be the city that all the other nations of the world flock to. You see the idea? Doom. And hope. And then if we go to chapter 6, you'll see the same. The Lord's case against Israel, Israel's misery. And then you get to chapter 7 and verse 8. And after all the doom and gloom, the prophet speaks as if he's Israel and says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, yet will I rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And he goes on to talk about the hope to come. So the idea is three sections, all beginning with this summons to hear. And each section has got warnings and encouragements. Warnings of judgment to come, encouragements of hope to come. So that's the way the book seems to split. And as we've seen, each section seems to aim at a group. The first section is all about the cities. The second section is all about the leaders. And the third section is all about the people in the nation. It really is a message for everyone. Broken cities, corrupt leaders, and an ungrateful, ungrateful people. Let's uh, just go back then. We've talked about the doom. And here's the hope. I just want to build up this idea of hope. And... uh, so that we can do it in time. There's a, there's a lot in this. Let me um, let me just go back with you to chapter two. I said we would go back. <clears throat> I just want you to notice at the end of chapter two, when Micah speaks about the hope to come, in the NIV here it says deliverance promised. I just want you to notice one thing here: that God speaks of Himself in terms of a shepherd who is a great king. I don't want us to miss that. He talks very tenderly to them. I I will gather you like a shepherd gathers its flock. That's a very tender picture, isn't it? But then in verse 13, he speaks about a mighty king who will break open the way, break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So Micah seems to introduce this idea of a king who is very mighty and who can fight for them, but he is also very tender, like a shepherd with his sheep. It's quite an unusual picture, that, isn't it? A king who's also a shepherd. Someone who's very mighty 
and yet very compassionate. Very interesting. He just alludes to it in those three or four verses. Well, not even that, two, two verses. Let's just think about the, uh, the next section, the doom. When you get into chapter 3, it's all about leaders. Verse 1, listen you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people. God wants the rulers to come to account. These leaders are corrupt. If you pay the prophet enough money, he'll give you good news. If you don't pay him, he'll give you bad news. Micah even says in verse 8 of chapter 3, No, no, no. As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression. What Micah is saying is, all of these prophets, they're all corrupt. Every one of them will just tell you what they think you want to hear, but not me. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth because God's Spirit is in me. You can't bribe me. You can't flatter me. I'm going to tell you like it is. That's, that's exactly what Micah says in chapter 3. He's angry, isn't he? These prophets should be guiding the people and they're lulling them to sleep. They should be telling them the truth and they're just flattering the people. It's all about money. And then he gets into chapter 4. And the hope. An amazing city. In the last days, God will rebuild this great city. He himself will be the teacher, the lawgiver, the settler of disputes. Peace will reign. Families will be secure. Judgment is coming, yes, but after that, I will bring you back. You're crying now, but you won't be crying then. That's really the message of Micah. The Lord will punish your enemies, and he'll make you again secure. Now, the question is, how on earth will that happen? The leaders are corrupt. The city's corrupt. Who is going to come and make it possible for this city to be rebuilt and to be the envy of the nations? Well, then we get into chapter 5. And I just want to dwell here for a little with you. This is one of the most profound sections of the whole Bible. Because God promises through Micah a king. But look at what he says in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem. I don't know how to say that next word. I can't say all the P's and H's and R's. Bethlehem, Ephrathrah. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old from ancient times wow 730 years before Christ 
in a scene of political turmoil massive superpowers crushing their enemies and skinning them alive and God says to his people one day I will raise up a king who will be born in the smallest village of the most insignificant county of the southern kingdom Bethlehem Bethlehem isn't that amazing that God's answer to this issue is to send a king who will be born not in Jerusalem or in Babylon but in the little farming community of Bethlehem isn't it incredible that Jesus wasn't even born to parents from Bethlehem but Mary and Joseph were asked to go to Bethlehem to fill in a census form and Mary who's pregnant there's no room and they end up in an animal shelter behind some house somewhere and she gives birth to Jesus the Christ in Bethlehem A king will emerge from the most unlikely place. And look at the language Mikey uses. This is someone whose origins are from old, pointing to his ancient deity, his divine nature, the Son of God. He didn't just begin when he was born in Bethlehem. This is the Son of God entering the human race. And yet he is truly human because Micah says... Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth. He was really born, and yet his origins are from old. This is the Christ. We know it's Jesus because Matthew in the New Testament confirms it. Can you remember when the wise men came? And they came to Jerusalem because they thought the king that had been signified in the stars would be in the palace. So they came to King Herod and King Herod sends for his wise men and says, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they get their Bibles out and they do a bit of studying and they go back to King Herod and they say, in Micah chapter 5, it says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. What does Herod do? He orders that every boy under the age of two years old in that area is slaughtered because he wants to get rid of the Messiah. Matthew says this was to fulfill what the prophet said. 700 BC. This is something only God would think of doing. Nations are squaring up to each other. And God sends his son to be born in a backwater village called Bethlehem. It is not by might or by power. It isn't the size of your army or the engine size of your car or the size of your house. It is by God's Spirit. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ, according to Micah, is the answer to global trouble? These global superpowers are merely little things in God's eyes. From God's perspective, the most important thing is the Christ. Jesus is not an interesting side issue. He is not just a great teacher 
He's not just some mythical figure from the past who's an emotional crutch for the weak and gullible. He is not even gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's not a slot machine that you can pray to, pull a handle and he'll give you what you want. Jesus Christ is the Lord. God promised to these hopeless people. Isn't it interesting that in verse 4, this mighty king, Jesus, is spoken of then in terms of shepherd language. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. He is a king who is a shepherd. Did not Jesus say, I am the good shepherd? A mighty king who is a tender shepherd. Hopelessness to hope. We need to be quick. Section 3. The whole nation. What's the doom here? Let's uh, very quickly look at the doom. Chapter 6, verse 1. We've talked about broken cities and corrupt leaders. So they're kind of over there somewhere. Now it's all you. The nation as a whole, me and you. God says, I want to make a date with you. It's not just any date. It's a date to attend court. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Can you imagine that? Almighty God saying, meet me in court. When someone says to you, I'll see you in court, that's not nice, is it? When God says, I'll see you in court, I'm going to bring the evidence and I'm going to prosecute you. This is some of the most eloquent language in the whole Bible. Let me see if I can get through it. God says to his dear, beloved people, verse 3, What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. What did I ever do to you that you should behave like you have to me? Can you sense the emotion in that courtroom scene? This is a God who loves them. He doesn't want to smash them. He loves them tenderly. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt when they were nothing. Who has provided everything they've needed. Did he ever do them any harm? God says to them, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wronged you for you to behave like this? I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Do you remember? Verse 
what a, what a, what a day. What a day that will be. To be called into court by God and for God to say, what have I ever done to hurt you? For you to mistrust me and malign me and reject me and rebel against me as you have done. This is a heart of love, isn't it, speaking? Then there's an interruption in verse 6. Somebody has the bottle to stand up in this courtroom and ask God a question. <laughs> okay, God. What, how shall we worship you then? And this person says... Shall we come with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Shall we come with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? I'll tell you what, let's kill our firstborn children. God will be pleased with that. What a ridiculous interruption that is. And you know what God says, verse 8, He has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? He doesn't want sacrifice. What he wants is your heart. He wants you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, as you should. I don't want you to be bizarre, God says. I'm not a demanding God. I just want you to be straight and good and true. And give me your heart. Trust me. Last week we were thinking about Hosea and the unfaithfulness of Gomer. and This is a similar picture. Here are people who are unfaithful. And God says, what have I ever done to harm you? Do you know what the problem is? As we draw to a close... They couldn't do it. They couldn't act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. Why? Because they had sinful hearts. There's nothing wrong with what God's asking them to do, but they couldn't do it. And the whole history of the nation of Israel is one great big picture of human failure to live up to God's goodness. Israel as a nation is a picture really of you and me they couldn't do it and neither can we where does the hope come from well the tone changes again in verse 8 of chapter 7 there's misery here in fact just before we move on to that if you look at the beginning of chapter 7 the prophet says, I don't know whether he's speaking for God here, what misery is mine? And he says, I'm like the one who gathers summer fruit after it's gone. Have you ever been blackberry picking in the winter? I think I'll make some jam and I'll go and pick some blackberries in December. And you go out with your bags 
and you're looking for fruit on the trees and you, it's freezing cold I've got my coat on and my scarf there's no blackberries anywhere you're looking for fruit and there is none that's what the prophet says I'm miserable when God looks at the nation of Israel there's not one person in the whole nation who is godly it's like looking for blackberries on a bush in December God looking for fruit in Israel and then we get to this great hope do not gloat over me my enemy though I I have fallen yet will I rise though I sit in darkness the Lord will be my light and interestingly when we get down to verse 14 just over the page the picture is still one of a shepherd. What did I say Micah's name was? Who is like the Lord? Look how he ends the book. Verse 18 is a play on words on his own name. Who is, God, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance do you know what the most amazing thing about God is it is the fact that he loves people and delights to forgive sinners who is like the Lord who pardons sin and forgives transgressions The answer for broken cities, corrupt leaders and an ungrateful people. Where is the answer to that found? Who can give help to the hopeless? It's found in a mighty king and a gentle shepherd, Jesus. God called Israel and he said, you go and be my people. Trust me, live with me at the centre of your lives. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. You'll be able to show to all the other nations of the world how great and good I am. And they couldn't do it. Their sin conquered them. It was impossible. They couldn't be godly. They were morally bankrupt. And God had to ask them, what have I done to deserve that? God is holy and they are guilty. And the prophets warn them over and over again, if you don't trust God, judgment will fall. What a hopeless situation. But as I said, it's just like us, isn't it? God demands that we live in holiness and goodness and fairness and truth. And we don't do it. And the question for us is, how? Can, the question for me is, how can I escape God's judgment falling on my head? How can I face him in court when I failed him? It's my fault, not his. And God's solution is not more effort. It is not more religion. It's not a better education. God's solution is Jesus. First of all, he is the one who is everything that Israel couldn't be. He acts justly and loves mercy and walks humbly with his father God. He is the only human being who has ever lived on the face of the earth 
who has fulfilled all the demands of God's holy standards. Jesus Christ is amazing. He's the hero in the story. Not one single sin, not one stumble, not one failure. His righteousness shines like the sun. Wasn't it graphic last night when Rich asked everyone to blow out their candles? If they hadn't done, what was it? If, If you've not done anything wrong, leave your candle lit. And one by one, everyone blew them out. Jesus is the only one who wouldn't have had to blow his candle out. Secondly, Jesus is the one who died the death that sinful people deserve. He wasn't guilty, and yet he was punished. He faced all of God's demands, God's anger against sin, God's justice. He bore all the guilt and shame. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned so that sinful people wouldn't have to be. The reason this is good news is that Jesus can take away our guilt and failure and he can give us his righteousness because we have none of our own. Let me just take you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. Joan read to it. You might be wondering when we were going to get to Romans. And this is, uh, we'll close with this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2 and 3. Hopeless, sinful, God's judgment. This is the hope that Jesus brings. Romans chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This verse 3 could sum up the whole of Micah. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. That verse sums up Micah. Hopeless, Jesus comes to bring hope. He saves us from guilt and judgment and hell. And he clothes us with his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at you and me, he sees Jesus If God called you into his courtroom and said, what should I do with you? Do you know what? We wouldn't have a leg to stand on. The only thing we can point to is that we have a righteousness that's not our own. And when we have that righteousness, we are as secure as the very angels in heaven. It doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. It depends on what he's done. And when you're clothed with Christ... You're safe. In God's eyes then, the greatest problem is not politics, but righteousness. 
And the ultimate reality is not what the nations do, but what Jesus has done. And the challenge for us this morning is to see that we're not the hero. The Lord Jesus Christ is the hero. Outside of him, there is no forgiveness, no peace. But in Christ, there is health and peace and eternal life. I want to urge you, plead with you, and and ask you, are you trusting in something else? Or is your hope in Jesus? the great shepherd king who died to save you and who offers you his eternal life. I hope this morning that you can say yes to that and that you won't be like that King Ahaz who said, no, I'm going to send a telegram somewhere else and trust in some other thing. Come and trust in Jesus and know his life and peace. Who is like God? Forgiving sins pardoning iniquity.